Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Oust. Hi Rena. Hi Amanda, how are you? I'm doing very well. I feel like I haven't spoken to you in a little while. Uh, yeah, it feels like a long time. <laughs> a little bit to catch up on. It's a busy time of the year, getting closer to Christmas. I don't know whether it's the same for strata managers, but certainly with lawyers, our clients tend to want everything done before the end of the year, before we uh, close up shop and go overseas and go and uh, enjoy our time away. Do you feel the same? Oh, yeah. I mean, everything's at a much higher pace in terms of getting quotes done, meetings done. Everyone wants something done before the end of the year exactly matters. So it's just a bit of a – and also, obviously, December being a shorter month. And also, I think, is invoices getting paid. Everyone wants their invoice paid before Christmas as well. I'm sure that includes lawyers too. Thanks for the reminder. I'm going to get mine out, yes. (laughs) So amongst all of that, what has been your challenge for this week, Rena? Well, it's been actually quite a, a funny week in that I've actually had about four different people approach me about compulsory management, uh-huh. which we know from the Act is Section 237, where the owners' corporations' powers are taken either in full or partially by the strata managing agent. And I think we discussed this before, Amanda, that the managing agent has to consent to the compulsory appointment. But mm-hmm. it's actually an indication to me either of I don't know, just perhaps, you know, the demographic that we work in or the fact that there are just issues that are arising Mm -hmm. due to different sort of interests, different personality types. I've actually had one building where there's been, you know, physical threats in a meeting where someone stood over somebody else. Yeah. Another one is non-compliance with the Act. So there's been agendas that don't comply with the Act. Mm -hmm. Um, Another case has been where the strata committee pretty much tells the strata manager what to do and whether it's legal or not, whether it complies with the Act or mm-hmm. not, that managing agent seems to do whatever they've been asked to do by that strata committee in order to sort of remain as the manager. Mm. I also had another case in another community association um, who contacted me and another strata manager was involved with a meeting, taking attendances and, yeah, so it's been really strange. Like within one week mm. uh, I've had four or five people approach me mm. I've even had lawyers approach me directly as well to take on compulsory management for some of their clients. Yeah, so they're approaching you seeking your written consent, which they can then attach to their application for compulsory appointment. Yes. And do you find, Rena, maybe you haven't seen this play out yet, but relative to the number of consents you're issuing, are those orders then being made and you find that you're taking on these buildings? Is it more likely than not that an order is made? Well, in this case, I mean, I think when the lawyers are involved, it's always occurred that it seems to be like a fait accompli. Yeah. But in in other cases where the lawyer hasn't been involved, what I try and do is say, okay, well, take me through, you know, what's been happening. You better do a bit of a chronology to sort of advise, you know, and obviously you need to attach accompanying documents. And sometimes I can sort of say to them, well, even though I understand that you would want a compulsory appointment because of the way that things are transpiring, but sometimes – I mean, I, don't, I haven't really been involved in any of the applications, so I don't really know what the tribunal looks at mm. in order to grant these orders. But yep. what I've noticed is that 
I think sometimes just because something doesn't work out the way it should and there's background stuff happening or stuff that shouldn't be happening, it doesn't mean necessarily that you've got enough evidence to actually submit the application. So I always mm. tell people that they should probably get some legal advice on it before they actually, before I even give them a proposal and give them a letter of consent because I think sometimes you just need to get that advice. Yeah, it's interesting that you say the applications that are made by lawyers acting for lot owners who are seeking these appointments are generally the more successful applications. I think that's because lawyers generally are perhaps conservative when it comes to these things. None of us like to lose, <laughs> lose litigation. So we won't mm. be advising our clients to go ahead and make an application if we don't think it has good prospects of success. Mm. And just looking at that section 237, anybody who's not familiar with it, it says sets out the circumstances in which an order can be made by the tribunal appointing a managing agent to exercise all the functions of the owners corporation and the committee and those circumstances are that the management of the strata scheme is not functioning or is not functioning satisfactorily. So we as lawyers might say in shorthand, your owner's corporation needs to be dysfunctional to be able to ground this kind of an order. Uh, Interestingly, you can also get this kind of an order if the owner's corporation has failed to comply with an order that's been made under the Act. So if they've been ordered by the tribunal to do something, often repairs and maintenance to common property and they Mm. haven't complied with that order, you can get a managing agent appointed to carry out that function. And another uh, little known part of this section actually permits creditors. So people who are owed debts by an owner's corporation, it permits creditors to seek an order for the appointment of a compulsory managing agent. And that's something that I've seen used quite successfully in a few cases. Um, One in particular, a lawyer, a lawyer who was owed a bit of money for some legal work they'd done. The owner's corporation hadn't paid them and they went off and got an order for a compulsory manager so that they could have the special levy raised and have their bill paid. And Ah. that judgment creditor can, under this section, be an applicant for that kind of order. So something that maybe contractors out there might want to be aware of and certainly owner's corporation should be where you might have some large debts outstanding that that is a risk that a judgment creditor can make this kind of application. Wouldn't they just go through the normal course of debt recovery and if you like go to a local court, et cetera? Just to be clear, they do have to actually have done that because they have to be a judgment creditor. So they have to have a judgment already. And this is what this really is, is a method of enforcing that judgment because how else do you enforce it? We're not going to wind up the owner's corporation, hopefully. A more cost efficient and time efficient way to achieve the end of getting your judgment paid is to have a manager appointed who's immediately going to raise a special levy and your funds will then be in to be able to meet that judgment. So that's what that section's been designed Mm. to do. And not many people know about that one. No, exactly. Mm. So, yes, um, I'll be interested to hear, Rena, those consents that you've sent out recently. Yeah, I'll I'll let you know how a few of them go, but I... In one particular one, I have asked them to go and get legal advice on the matter because I don't believe that their application on the face of it has enough evidence, even though there is probably evidence there, but they need to produce that evidence. Yeah. And when it comes to managing schemes, I know you've got a couple at the moment under a a compulsory management. How does that compare to managing a scheme under a normal, if you like, agency agreement? Yeah. I actually find um, you tend to worry more about those schemes because in a sense, you're making all the decisions. So in a a sense, I mean, how I treat them is how 
any building should be treated or would be if they had their own committee. Um, you've got to practice your fiduciary duty by getting two or three quotes for things like you would if the committee was acting in its own capacity. Um, I suppose in a sense one of the advantages that you don't really have to, you know, I mean I like to take into consideration um, what the owner's views are. So when, yes. I, when the AGM comes, I, you know, obviously ask them if they have any particular things they'd like me to put and include on the agenda. Um, but in a sense you get people's feedback but then – you don't have to actually act on it if you don't think it's in the best interest of the owner's corporation. That's right, yep. And when you're in that position also, there's always going to be friction between owners, which is why, you know, you are, you have mm. been. So sometimes, in a sense, a lot of owners in those schemes gain comfort by knowing that there is a compulsorily appointed manager who's able to take carry to the scheme mm. and make sound decisions on their behalf. Yes, but you do need to be tough because they're under that appointment for a reason. There have often been difficulties and conflict and tough love, I like to call it. They need a bit of tough love. <laughs> I think you might be good at that, Rena, which is why, yeah, I think so. <laughs> why you're being approached with those quotes. <laughs> All right. Well, my challenge for this week uh, comes from a podcast listener. The listener approached me and said, Amanda, we have been going through this process of reviewing our bylaws so that we can comply with the new act to have met the requirement to review our bylaws by the 30th of November 2017. And uh, I've said they were going through that process, but the fact is that this listener said the strata manager had actually invoiced the building for conducting the bylaw review. And this committee in particular had no idea that the review had been conducted uh, ostensibly by the strata manager and didn't understand how it was that this charge could be invoiced to them. Now, when the listener came to me with this query, I said, well, is there anything in the agency agreement that says uh, the strata manager has the authority to review the bylaws or conduct a review of the bylaws and to charge uh, whatever it was, the amount that had been charged? And the listener said, no, they'd had a look at that and there wasn't any clause. So I'm just raising this, Rena. I don't know if you've heard about this happening. Yeah, actually, um, I did actually have the same thing asked to me by a building that um, had asked me to provide them with a proposal. Oh. And they said to me, oh, do you charge for a bylaw review? And I said, well, what do you mean? And so we've been charged, I think, a few hundred dollars by their strata manager mm. for a bylaw review. And I sort of thought to myself, well, what qualifications does a strata manager have to review bylaws in mm. terms of, I mean, I think that as an agent, you know, I provide advice about perhaps looking at what breaches are occurring in a building, for example, and saying perhaps you may want to think about a bylaw that addresses this, this and this sure. based on what happens in the building. But in terms of having the qualifications to actually review bylaws, I don't really understand how a managing agent could charge for that mm. on, and on what basis they could actually, like, do they give a proper review? Do they give a report? Or? Yeah, who knows? I think there's actually been a, a bit of confusion around terminology when it comes to these reviews because, uh, and I may have raised this in a previous episode, there is a difference between reviewing the bylaws and consolidating the bylaws. Now, yes. when the, the new Act came into force last year, there was immediately a requirement in the Act that the Secretary must keep a consolidated up-to-date copy of the bylaws. So many uh, strata managers went about collating bylaws for their schemes, making sure that all the bylaws were in one single Word document or a PDF and uh, what was yeah. essentially a typing exercise to put all the bylaws together. And some strata managers, they might be busy, uh, they might decide to outsource 
this work and they get instructions from their strata committees to engage a lawyer to do that task for them. And I've certainly been doing them in my practice. And as I said, it's a typing exercise. I'm assisted by my paralegals in doing that. And I charge about 500 bucks to put a consolidated copy of bylaws together. Now, that's very different to a bylaw review, which is a process of looking at the bylaws, deciding what should be added, amended or repealed, looking at the problems that the building's been having and how these may or, or may not be effectively addressed by bylaws and then having new bylaws drafted. Now, that's a process that I've been charging, uh, depending on the size of the building and the number of bylaws, up to $8,000 for that process. And it's definitely something that an experienced strata lawyer needs to do. I wouldn't be surprised if what strata managers are doing is the consolidation, not the review. But certainly if they are doing the review, I would be very concerned that they're outside the scope of their professional skill and probably professional obligation without having some authority under their agency agreement to be doing that. Yeah, I don't think that half the time those sort of managers that have done that actually do have the authority or the knowledge, I don't believe, Amanda, because... Unless it's a new agency agreement which came out just after November last year, I don't know how that would even be included unless they've added as part of their schedules of charges a review fee, but it does seem a bit strange to me. Yeah. Now, just on this topic of agency agreements, a couple of episodes ago, Rena, you and I discussed the SCA standard form agency agreement, the 2017 version, and this was in episode 86. And I have an update for our listeners. Yes, the president of SCA New South Wales, Chris Duggan, had a listen to our episode and has reached out to me and has offered some clarification. And the clarification goes to the point uh, that we discussed, Rena, that the listener who contacted me was concerned that the strata manager in particular had put their agency agreement to the building on the basis that it was a take it or leave it agreement. It was in the SCA standard form and that it could not be amended. Now, Chris has provided me with the wording of a section of the SCA user guide, which apparently SCA issues to corporate strata managers and explains to them what it is that the standard form SCA agency agreement does and how it should be used. And this guide actually contains these words. The corporate member may make amendments to the template agency agreement by hand alterations or by attached special conditions to reflect terms agreed with specific clients. So what Chris is saying there is that the SCA standard form agreement is not a take it or leave it agreement and should not be put to buildings by SCA members on that basis. And if SCA members are doing that, then they need to go back and they need to look at that user guide and refresh on the contents there. So uh, I absolutely thank Chris Duggan, President of SCA New South Wales, for tuning into the podcast and weighing in on that issue. And I did tell Chris that I would address this in this episode and put that call out there to strata managers to be really clear about the fact that you can be amending these agreements and you can be uh, having those discussions with your committees. And it's probably unhelpful both in a commercial respect and a legal respect to be telling your buildings that they can't negotiate those terms. Yeah, I think that's right, Amanda. I think that a lot of managers don't really understand the Australian consumer law in the first instance in terms of contracts and, and how they work. And, and also, I mean, I've known for a very long time that we were able to always amend the SCA agreement um, by other crossing parts out of it if the client and our company 
um, mutually agreed to that amendment and we initial it or we add a, yeah, an extra page at the back to say that these are additional clauses that apply or, yeah, so I think that's always been the case but perhaps I think members don't understand, you know, how these things have worked and maybe SCA could probably do a bit of a broadcast and remind managers on how to use the SCA agreement. Yep, yeah, I think that's definitely the intention. Okay, so Rena, what has been your win for this week? Well, it's funny, I had a building that asked me to quote and, you know, they accepted our proposal and they considered a number of strata managers and they had interviews and then they decided to put um, our company forward. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so at the end, just before the EGM was being issued, I, I had um, an email saying, oh, you know, will you reduce your agreement from two years to one year? And I said, no, two years is good because it takes time to set up a new building to, you know, understand what's happening, to get to know the owners and and one year is not really sufficient. And, and I also don't really agree for a first-time relationship to do three years. I know most managers have been doing three years, but I think two years is, is good because it gives each party time to ensure that they're happy with each other. Mm. And so I said, well, we had asked you that. And I said, no, I don't recall being asked that. But the answer basically is I'm sorry. Then I had another committee member from the same building, you know, ask me about some, you know, archive fees and bass fees, et cetera. And I'm thinking this is not a very good way to start a relationship. Mm. I can already see you know, it'll be fractious from the beginning if people are worried about, you know, I mean, I can understand they had a bad experience with their previous manager and therefore they're very cautious and there's nothing wrong with being cautious. Mm. But on the other hand, when you don't know how many boxes they're going to have in storage and you've got to pay for storage. So <laughs> yep, right. I just thought that was a bit too extreme. So basically I just said, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's better if I withdraw my consent to be your manager because I don't think it's going to work if from the beginning mm. this is happening. And they said to me, oh, no, 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 there's only one member and, of course, now, you know, they still want to have Strata Central appointed. But I think it just goes to show that, you know, there is there is that premise where, you know, people don't really understand, lot owners, how much work is done in the background by Strata managers and yep. especially in the different parts of the company. So, you know, you may deal with your Strata manager doing certain things, but in the background there's people doing insurance, there's people doing data changes, there's people doing accounting. Mm-hmm. And there's a saying, you know, you know, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. And I think Strata management has really been an example of that where, you know, there's been a lot of competition, um, people want to get management, so they discount their fees, but then you really can't produce a service that's needed. And so I think sometimes for managers, if you know you're delivering a good service, you know, you're available to your committee members, you meet with them regularly, you're engaged with the building, you're proactive. I think based on that, you need to make sure that, you, you know, you charge adequately. Mm-hmm. And those people that have had bad experiences with strata managers, and, and there are many that I would say would fit into that camp, um, would say, no, let's just give it a go and let's try someone new. And and I think as managers, we should stay strong and, and say, well, you know, if we do deliver a good service, a high quality service, you know, we need to charge appropriately for mm. that because you need to engage, you know, good people and, and anything in life, quality always usually costs. So mm, That's right. It's a, I think it's really about placing a value on yourself, isn't it? Yeah. And I think strata managers have struggled with that for so long and, and hopefully with examples like yourself, Rena, we're starting to see those tables turn a bit. If you want to be professional, if you want to be respected, if you want to take up the status of, for example, lawyers in the quality and the importance of the work that you do, you've got to first of all value yourself. And that's about putting your services out there to owners and explaining to them what it is we do and why it is we charge this much. I've got to say, my cost agreement contains all sorts of little things like archive fees and fees for emails and faxes and photocopying and uh, do you think I ever get questioned about that? Absolutely not. People just Mm. take for granted that if 
you're going to receive the quality of service that a lawyer is going to provide, then you've got to cover those back-end costs. And yeah, exactly. I, I think strata managers could take that kind of example if they want to be respected in the work that they're doing, which is just as important as the legal work that we do in this space, then you need to be charging accordingly. And uh, that's the only way that you, you change the perception of the profession. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, there's a long way to go for strata managers, I think, in this area, but I think we're getting there slowly, mm. surely. <laughs> yeah, good. No, I absolutely I think it is a win and good on you for sticking to your guns and placing that value on yourself, telling that particular building, if you want me, then this is what you're signing up for. And lo mm. and behold, they still want you. Yeah. <laughs> and if they don't, that's fine as well. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Good on you. All right. Well, my win this week, I'm coming back to a topic that I've raised a couple of times on the podcast and we finally have a tribunal result. This topic was how do you enforce an adjudicator's order that was made under the old law when we now have the new law? Mm. And we now have a decided case and no doubt by the time this goes to air, many of our listeners would have heard about this, uh, read it in the paper. It has appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, both the, the actual paper and domain online. It's the case of Strata Plan 82306 and Anderson, and that's a published case, so I can let you know those details. I will put a link to the judgment in the show notes if you want to have a read. And this was a case where I appeared before a panel of the tribunal, and it was a specially convened panel to hear this issue in particular. Uh, it included the president of the tribunal, and we sought guidance from the tribunal as to how we seek a penalty order for a lot owner's breach of an earlier adjudicator's order. And there was great confusion in the process uh, because the new act did not make clear how it was that we could do that. Now, the tribunal has provided that guidance and said that where you have an order made by an adjudicator under the old law, then it is enforced under the old law as if the old law still applies. So you go to the tribunal and you can seek a penalty of up to $5,000, which is the old law, if there's been a breach of an adjudicator's order. So there may still be some of those old orders floating around. They are in force for two years from the date that they're made. So we've got another year on that. If you've got an adjudicator's order that might have been made right before the new act came in, if there's been a breach of that order. So for example, the adjudicator said the lot owner must replace the flooring that she's removed from the lot and the lot owner doesn't do that, then you head off to the tribunal and you seek a penalty order under the old act. Now, what this case also highlighted, and this is what's been reported in the media, is that if an order is made by the tribunal under the new act, because we no longer have adjudicators, so these kinds of orders will now be made by the tribunal, and that order in first instance is not complied with, there is an avenue to pursue the breach of that order. You apply to the tribunal again and you seek a penalty, but you can't make that application unless you have the minister's consent. Oh, dear. <laughs> and the tribunal identified this in the judgment and I've been quoted uh, by Sue Williams in the City Morning Herald calling for change and calling for an amendment to the Act that makes this process less onerous and doesn't require the minister's consent to be able to seek 
a penalty order for breach of tribunal's orders. It is already hard enough for mm. bylaws to be enforced and for a recalcitrant, let's say, lot owners to understand that there are consequences for their actions. So requiring a building, for example, to jump through hoops to try and get their application even filed under the new law is just a, a recipe for disaster, I think. So hopefully that call will be taken up and I know other lawyers are making the same call. But definitely go and have a read of that case. It's a really interesting one that, that traverses uh, various aspects of both the old and new law and I'll have a link to that one in the show notes. That's great, man. I think I would say that it might have been sort of a flaw in the act where this wasn't really thought about thoroughly at the time. I don't believe that it was made to make it more difficult yeah. for owners' corporations to enforce their rights. But I think you're right. We need to wait and see what happens in that space. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the flaw is this. What there should be is a delegation of some authority from the minister to the Department of Fair Trading or the tribunal or whatever the appropriate body is, the the registrar of the tribunal, that the applications can be made to that person and that person is delegated the authority to provide consent on behalf of the minister. There is a way to do that in legislation and that's what needs to be done in this particular case. So yeah. uh, it's not actually the minister who's providing the consent, but somebody who's then been delegated that authority. And I'm not sure that that option is there in the legislation as it stands. Okay. So, oh, I think that's it for this week, Rena. Another jam-packed episode. Yeah, it's been quite busy, Amanda. So hopefully um, we'll get to hear more about that legislation change in the near future. Yep, definitely. And remember, you can always get the transcripts of these episodes. This particular episode, you'll get the transcript from yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash 090. This being episode 90. Thank you once again, Rena. Thank you, Amanda. Catch you Bye-bye. next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?